Welcome to the AJP Heart and Circ podcast. I'm Kara Hansel-Keehan. Today we'll discuss a new guidelines in cardiovascular research article by Ripplinger et al. titled, Guidelines for Assessment of Cardiac Electrophysiology and Arrhythmias in Small Animals. This article was published November 21st, 2022. Joining us today are Associate Editor Dr. Zam Kassiri and authors Dr. Crystal Ripplinger, Dr. Nikki Posnack, Dr. Carol Ann Remy, Dr. Matthew Kay, Dr. Alexei Glukov, and Dr. Alex Quinn. Let's get started. Sam? Thanks, Kara. And it's a pleasure to be uh, doing this podcast about this very interesting uh, guideline article. So Crystal, you're the lead author on this guideline. So this is a very comprehensive document that provides an overview of several models and techniques in studying electrophysiology in small animal models. Can you just tell us what was the motivation uh, behind undertaking such a great task of putting such comprehensive document together? Well, thank you very much, Sam. So I I think the motivation for putting these guidelines together in some way came from all of the previous guidelines articles that have come out of AJP, Hart and Circ that have been so useful for the field. And so coming from an electrophysiology perspective, I thought it would be really helpful if we did one of our own guidelines to comprehensively cover many of the common electrophysiology approaches uh, that are out there. So we went about to do that. And yes, it's very comprehensive, but also cardiac electrophysiology can really span such an enormous scale from you know, individual ion channels up to in vivo. It was impossible to cover all of that. So we really took the focus on this in terms of tissue level, whole heart level, and in vivo measurements that investigators might use to assess electrophysiological parameters and arrhythmia propensity. So although the guidelines includes many of these techniques, it also does not include a lot of uh, cellular-based techniques that are, of course, important as well. In addition to techniques, as any electrophysiologist will tell you, one of the most important things is what are you going to measure with those techniques and what parameters are you going to assess? So in addition to all of the experimental techniques that we cover in this article, we also have a whole section at the front really dedicated to what parameters an investigator might wanna measure, how they're going to calculate those and what those might mean in terms of electrophysiological remodeling or pro or antiarrhythmic propensity. And I really think that that might end up being one of the most useful uh, items of this guidelines article. I know for me, especially with new trainees joining the lab, that's something that can be really a lot of information to gather. So hopefully that part of the guidelines article will be useful for new new trainees as well as um, investigators looking to get into the electrophysiology field. Thanks, Crystal. And I, I completely agree. And I have to say, table one is one of my favorite uh, parts of this article where you nicely summarize the different methods for recording of electrical activity of the heart, what level of invasive each one of them entails, and the information that each one of them provides, and strength and weakness of each one of these methods. So you basically, it's like in that one table, you pr- pretty much summarize the whole EP world. I'm, I'm sure there's more to it, but you know, it's a, it's a great uh, resource. Um, So you did mention that um, it was 
this document is primarily on um, studying electrophysiology in small animals. So I was um, hoping that, Matt, if you could tell us why small animals and uh, what advantages studying small animals can have over many other experimental models that exist. Sure. Thank you, Sam. So we decided to focus on the small animal experiments, primarily because um, there are many labs that are studying small animal models of cardiovascular disease. Small animals provide um, many advantages over large animals. I mean, large animal studies are extremely important as well, particularly for preclinical validation of, of, of many hypotheses and therapies. The small animal models also provide an important platform for screening um, hypotheses and, and studying multiple groups that, that might be exposed to a particular therapy because it's, easy, it's easier, it's cheaper to house small animals. More animals can be included in, in, in each group. Um, so the number is one particular advantage of small animal studies. The other is that there are many transgenic species that are available in small animals, in mice in particular, that aren't available in larger animals, um, that provide very detailed mechanistic um, ways of testing hypotheses and cardiovascular therapies and arrhythmia therapies. Those are the two primary advantages of small animals that come to mind. And may maybe um, I'll allow my colleague, Alexi, to maybe discuss a few of the other advantages that I haven't mentioned. Thank you, Matt. Uh, I would like to echo uh, Crystal's statement that, that some of the measurements, experimental techniques and recommendations we provided in these guidelines could be universally applied to a variety of species, including large animals. And specifically for these, we included a quantifying electrophysiology section where we provided all the important details and discussed fundamental mechanisms of cardiac electrophysiology and arrhythmogenesis, which could be applied for both rodents and small animals. And I would also like to add that ex vivo studies on large animals are very comprehensive and in most of the cases they are accompanied by clinical electrophysiologists who can uh, support all these highly clinically relevant measurements. But uh, ex vivo and in vivo experiments all large animals experimentally are very similar to what we describe here for rodents. So, so overall, this is a more universal guidelines, and most of the parts can be applied to both rodents and large animals, which, of course, uh, provide a very clinically relevant uh, platform for, for research. Thank you, Matt and Alexi. I completely agree. It's um, There are many, many uh, pros and cons to each model. And going back to the whole uh, electrophysiology world, and there's no question that it can be a very intimidating field for investigators and scientists who are not in the field. And uh, in many cases, it may be avoided when studying a disease model just because of that factor. And I have to say, I did my uh, PhD in electrophysiology, and I like to compare that to having been in an accident that 
which after a few years, you remember the event, but not the pain. So there's no question that this electrophysiology is very technically demanding and very labor intensive. And you need a person with a full dedication and commitment to take over this, um, these kind of experiments. So for anyone who is considering either to explore the electrophysiology in their disease model or they are considering to enter this world, I would like to get your advice on how to approach this and how to decide where to start and what to study with first. And Caroline, I was hoping if you could um, uh, share your advice with us. Yes, Sam, of course. Um, indeed, as you say, it can be quite daunting. And I think a lot of people, especially if you're not really well into the electrophysiology field, you might think from a distance that it's that it's very complicated. But I think what we could do, what we, what we should consider is that there are multiple levels that you can study electrophysiology. And, you know, you don't have to immediately go all the way down to patch clamping or ion channel function. So I think that it really depends on, on what the question is. And one of the nice things about, you know, research in the last decades is that we're, we're more and more integrating things, right? So we're more and more integrating metabolic disorders, cardiomyopathies. Uh, Etc. And we're seeing now increasingly recognizing that there is a, a big link between many, many disorders and electrical changes. So indeed, what we now see is that more people are getting interested in saying, okay, I have a model for maybe cardiomyopathy, and I want to know if there is an electrical uh, disorder associated with that. So then they might indeed venture into the electrical uh, field. And I think that, and, and I'm sure Nikki will also follow up uh, on that, but I think that depending on what the question is. So again, if you have a new um, gene or a new disease or a new mutation or a pathway, and you're not really sure yet if there is an electrical disorder associated with that, you can start relatively simple. You know, you can start with, with doing an ECG, uh, maybe look if there are any arrhythmias that are occurring in that particular model. And that can really be a starting point to then maybe continue uh, if you do find some some indication of electrical changes to go further and maybe look on the whole heart level or maybe go even further down to the cardiomyocyte level. And, and also similarly for pharmacology studies, you know, if you, for instance, want to study a new compound that might be relevant for atrial fibrillation, for instance. So you, you choose a model that, that's, that's relevant for atrial fibrillation, like we described also in the, in the guidelines. And then you start with seeing whether or not that particular new compound actually does impact the atrial fibrillation in the model before going down to studying how it does that. So how, and then you go more to the, micro, to the cardiomyocyte level or the calcium level or the ion channels. But on the other hand, if you really have this idea that something would impact, for instance, on, on a particular ion channel, you might consider going more in, in that direction initially. So again, I think it really depends on, on the type of research question. And, and I'm really happy to see that we're getting more and more, you know, more of an integrative approach where we have, um, where we're looking more in detail and not just looking at electrophysiology per se, but are collaborating more and more with other groups looking into all these disorders. And I think that's where the EP studies can really make a difference, where we can really go further into how does electrical disorders, how they impact on, on many other 
diseases, including metabolic diseases, cardiomyopathies, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Nikki, would you like to add to that? So I agree with everything that, that Carol Ann uh, kind of described. Really, the approach that a lab might take could be starting, starting on the large animal level, whole animal level, doing some in vivo screening to see if their disease or disorder that they're investigating has some electrophysiology effects. Or the opposite is true if you're kind of looking at a specific drug of interest or in our lab, we're really interested in environmental toxins. We might start from the from the other approach where we're doing more high throughput um, using you know, cellular-based models and then kind of validating those in an isolated heart or an in vivo system. So you can kind of start top down or start from the, the bottom and move your way up. Again, kind of getting back to what Carol Ann had, had described, really integrating all of those different components becomes really important. Um, you might start from a whole animal and then and then use those same those same animal models to kind of investigate underlying mechanisms, um, you know, on the on the tissue or cellular level, kind of working in the opposite direction where you where you start with more of a simplistic model, trying to really understand if um, if you might be able to inhibit or or exacerbate some of those electrophysiological conditions. Um, and then the, the other part that I thought I might touch on is just, we had kind of mentioned, you know, what might be the best approach to someone who's new to, to electrophysiology or to electro, electrophysiological research. Um, and one thing that really came to, to my mind as we were working on this guidelines article is how important um, collaboration is, particularly uh, when you're when you're getting into a new field or or trying to tackle one of these new techniques that might be might be different um, than what your lab has done in the past, and so I think really having collaborators who have complementary expertise becomes really important. Um, not only for having the correct equipment or technology for doing some of these studies, but also for the analysis. I know certainly we've we've given some advice to other individuals who are you know, just stepping into the optical mapping field and want to make sure that they're loading dyes correctly or they're correctly analyzing the, the signals that they're collecting. And so I think all of that kind of cross-collaboration and learning from others becomes really important. Thank you, Nikki. I completely agree. I think that um, collaborative aspect of it is absolutely correct because to become an expert in the field, especially electrophysiology, is not easy. So I think that's uh, when investigators should take full advantage of potential collaborations. I just wanted to add something to what Carol Ann said about looking at the the sort of more integrative approach, because you know for so long, probably most people think about electrophysiology as a functional consequence or change in electrophysiology as a functional consequence to their pathology, whether it's underlying metabolic disease or whatever it is. And I think it's actually great that there is this move towards seeing that it's actually a big cycle and that the electrophysiology feeds into these diseases as well. So we really don't, not thinking of it purely as a functional consequence of disease, which is probably traditionally what people think about it, is, you know, we, it's time to move on from that and see that actually the way that it feeds back so that people looking at these diseases have to think about how electrophysiology is actually going to be contributing to what they're finding, not just going to be driven by what they're finding. Thanks, Alex. That's that's a great point. My recollection from the world of electrophysiology is that the action potential and the shape of the action potential is very important in the heart and the type of the heart disease. 
Now, action potential can be measured in different ways. It can be recorded from single cells with glass electrodes, or it can be recorded from the whole heart by um, optical mapping. Now, given that there is a specificity to the transmural location of the cells of the cardiomyocytes and the shape of the action potential, Alex, which one do you think is a more accurate approach, the single myocyte or the whole heart, or should these data be just interpreted differently? Yeah, thanks, Zam, for the question. I, I think that when measuring action potentials, let's say from the ventricles, uh, you're potentially going to find very large amounts of variability depending on the technique you choose. That's for multiple reasons. So you're you know, wondering which is the best. I don't think there's probably the best. It depends on what you're trying to do with most things. And the first reason you're going to find differences really are related to the techniques themselves. So optical mapping relies on light activation of voltage-sensitive fluorescent dyes. And this requires light to actually penetrate the tissue, right? So usually this is from the epicardium. We shine light on the surface of the heart. So due to the physics of light penetration, a large portion of your signal is going to come from superficial layers of myocytes, right? And this is going to depend on the wavelength of the light you use. So we have voltage dyes that are excited by longer wavelengths of light, such as red. And then this is going to, you know, penetrate deeper and excite a larger portion of tissue, and you'll get a more transmural signal, and you're going to get bigger contribution from those deeper layers. It's sort of important then to realize that this signal is a weighted average, right? So it's actually being averaged over the depth of the tissue that it's excited, so it's not a point measurement. And then this is further exasperated by light scattering as light bounces off the tissue when it's being measured. So you don't really get a point measurement, you get this average over a region in the heart. When we talk about glass electrodes, now those can be used in the whole heart. So you can puncture the uh, cell within the, the whole heart and the tissue there. And that's going to truly be a point measurement. It's going to be like a single cell measurement in the whole heart. So that's pretty powerful. That can be inserted at any depth in the wall in theory. So you can get that point measurement from wherever you want. Um, so you're going to get an excellent point measurement that way in the whole tissue. Um, and compared to the optical mapping action potential, it's going to look a little different. The optical mapping action potential is essentially like a smooth version of the action potential, if you will. So it'll have a less steep upstroke, maybe altered shape of the plateau and repolarization. Um, and while the glass electrodes are point measurements, you're going to get really a reflection of that local action potential wherever it is, the characteristics of it. And that's going to vary by region where you choose to uh, put your electrode. Now, of course, you lose the advantage of being able to see that over the entire heart at the same time. It's only a point measurement. Now, I'd like to add one other point because you kind of alluded to single cells. So even though the glass electrode is measuring a single cell action potential in the whole heart, someone might wonder why bother with that? Just why not isolate cells and use patch clamp or other techniques to measure action potentials from isolated single cells, right? Now, while that will also give you a point measurement, essentially, and if you're careful about where you isolate those cells from, you could get transmural or regional information, there is, you know, things to consider there as well, because when you isolate cells from the heart, they're no longer subject to the electrotonic load of their neighbors. And this means that you're going to have differences in their action potentials as well, because intercellular coupling between heterogeneous cell populations that we find in the heart, we know greatly alter their activity. And this is going to be lost in that case. So, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't want to answer the question of which is the best. I think with any technique, you need to, need to decide what you need to measure. Do you want a point, a very regional measurement, or do you want sort of it in, over the entire heart to be able to measure heterogeneity, say, in action potentials? Um, and then you think about what techniques will work for you. And then ultimately, when you interpret your data, you just need to remember their limitations. So don't think of a optically measured action potential as a point measurement. Recognize that it's some kind of a signal average. 
but that you gain information as well. Those are great points, Alex. And I think it is very important to know what you're recording and just take it for for what it is, rather than just making a preconceived uh, conclusion uh, from the recordings that you're doing. And with that, actually, I'd like to ask, what are this other some other cautionary notes that uh, you guys collectively would like to emphasize uh, for anyone who is conducting electrophysiology recordings in their animals? What should they watch for and what should they control for? Caroline, if you would like to start, and then we'll see who else would like to um, contribute. Yes. Yeah, so I think what's very important is that in some cases, you, I mean, more and more we're getting commercially available um, techniques, that you, which is great, um, uh, meaning that, for instance, you know, you can have an ECG machine that you can use. And a lot of these systems actually also provide a, a data analysis software to go with it. But you have to be very careful that you don't, let's say, blindly follow what the computer, what the data analysis software tells you. I think it's very important that you always, you know, very cr- critically look at, at the data yourself. And, and for that, of course, it's, it's very important that you are knowledgeable of at least, you know, the, the basics of electrophysiology. And, and for that, I think it's very, uh, it's very important also to, you know, to seek help or advice, uh, you know, if you're, if you're unsure of, uh, uh, of, of the exact source of the data that you're working with. And I would really urge not to simply, you know, plug in and and measure and then just take for granted what the what the machine is telling you and instead you know i think i think we're all very open to to help everybody who has any specific questions about that but this is just one example i'm sure there are many more of these i would just like to add a little bit to what uh, carolyn just said i i completely agree that um it, you can get into a lot of trouble if you have an automated program that's just spitting out data and you're not really carefully checking to make sure that those numbers are really rooted in reality. And I think one area where that can also get tricky is with uh, rodents, um, particularly mice and rats that have a very short action potential and a very fast heart rate. Some of those automated ECG analysis programs and uh, calculations of repolarization get really tricky in those uh, smaller animals that have those triangular action potentials compared to um, some larger animals. And that's one thing that we do cover in the guidelines um, kind of several times and sort of point out those caveats and those places where if you're working with rodents in particular, you need to take some extra caution as to how you're interpreting that. So hopefully that's something that readers um, can find uh, in the guidelines as something that's, that's helpful in this respect. Leading on from what Carolyn and, and Crystal were saying, another thing to, to maybe a way to also escape uh, making a mistake. I mean, the beauty of a lot of these techniques is they can be combined. So I just going back to the example of optical mapping and sharp electrode recordings, you can do those at the same time. So you can get a point measurement of the true action potential, if you will, at the same time as you're getting your optical mapping data. And you could have an ECG at the same time as well. So if you use them in combination and they all give you bits of information, then you start to feel a little more confident in what you're finding because you expect to see it being sort of manifested in some way in each of these different measurement techniques. So, you know, remembering that these are not working in isolation and they really often can be combined is a good thing to keep in mind as well. I'll follow on with a comment regarding what Alex mentioned earlier. Um, and also, I think is something that 
new trainees and, and users of ex vivo preparations in particular could keep in mind, and, and these are aspects that we discuss in the guidelines manuscript, is the preparation is also very important, the ex vivo preparation. Um, some of these assessments are made um, in vivo using telemetry devices. You can also make these assessments in theoretically in an open chest situation where the heart stays in the animal, but yet you have access to put electrodes on the heart or even do optical mapping uh, of, of a blood perfused heart um, in an open chest situation. Uh, and the other more common approach is to excise the hearts from the animals and perfuse them ex vivo. And that has many advantages of having providing a well-controlled experimental platform um, for studying electrophysiology, providing full access to, uh, to all surface areas of the epicardium um, in particular uh, for optical mapping. That's important. Um, at the same time, you know, the ex vivo preparations can are typically unloaded, meaning that the heart isn't doing true pressure volume work. Um, in many of the traditional Langendorf preparation perfusion um, approaches, the hearts can be excised and, and prepared for working heart situations using uh, working heart perfusion, um, either left ventricle working hard or right ventricle working hard or both. My point is measuring electrophysiology in the ex vivo preparations can, can be tricky in that depending upon the preparation and the metabolic demands of the preparation, the oxygenation um, has to be carefully considered, particularly for working heart preparations. One of the advantages of typical optical mapping approaches is that we electromechanically uncouple the hearts, which dramatically reduces their need for oxygenation because they're not doing any contraction. And it's a great way to measure electrophysiology in a low metabolic situation. So um, I mentioned this just so that new, new users of, of these ex vivo technologies will remember that not only the limitations of the measurement itself and the analysis itself, but also there are particular caveats of the preparation that are important that could influence the electrophysiology that's being measured. So just kind of following up with what Matt was discussing, um, we, we use intact heart preparations a lot in the lab, and, and he pointed out there's a number of, of pros to using those preparations. And in the guidelines, probably nearly most of the techniques we describe can be applied to um, excised heart preparations. There are a lot of benefits to that. But as he points out, there's not only the technical problems with making sure you're analyzing the signals correctly, uh, but also the caveat of thinking about the, the in vivo interactions that the heart usually undergoes. So, you know, Matt works a lot with like how the metabolism affects um, cardiac function. And then I was also thinking of some of the work Crystal does with autonomic um, regulation of the heart. And so I, I think they both bring up really important points. It's not just technically measuring the signals correctly, but then also taking a step back and thinking about how the heart integrates in the in vivo system and whether you might get the same results in an in vivo preparation as you do in an ex vivo preparation and just kind of being prepared to think about that limitation. Can I can I just add, add, add a couple sentences here on top of what Matt and Nikki said that the, the researchers which uh, use all these techniques, especially uh, on uh, ex vivo preparations, they should be really careful about technical details of uh, these preparations. 
how these uh, hearts are stained with voltage sensitive dye, how these dyes and different drugs are prepared, if the perfusion is normal, is the coronary pressure uh, good? Uh, what about the heart rate of these preparations? How well uh, this preparation is perfused over time to avoid a possible edema on some artificial effects on the sinatrial node, on the atrial ventricular con uh, conduction. And uh, this is uh, also important for the isolated preparations like isolated atrial preparation, which can be easily overstretched or overstained. And all these small technical details can really affect the quality of the preparation and result in some artificial results, artificial findings, which would be hard to interpret and which would be hard to publish. And it may, it may result and affect the rigor and reproducibility of these results by, by other groups. Thank you. These were all very, very important and great points to keep in mind, which brings us back to the point of collaborating with the experts to make sure that every consideration is given to obtain the proper data. So I want to thank everyone and also point out to our listeners that these are just a few points that are very thoroughly discussed in this guideline article. And I, I strongly recommend anyone who is interested in, expert or non-expert, interested in electrophysiology in small animal models to read this guideline. And uh, again, I'd like to thank you all. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.